our human response to a worsening climate in many cases is got to be to rebuild kinder, regenerative, more socially integrated, more just communities. We don't have to interpret climate collapse, as some are saying, as the collapse of our own systems of decency and human systems. Hello and welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with me, Clover Hogan. Today's episode is with Fahana Yaman, an environmental lawyer who has been at the highest level of international climate negotiations for over 25 years. Fahana has spent her career creating new laws, yet in early 2019, she found herself breaking them as she glued herself to the pavement outside the Shell building in London. In this episode, Fahana and I discuss when to fight, how the key to solving the climate crisis lies in community, and why the flip side of how royally we've messed up the planet is how many ways there are to help it. Enjoy. We continue to perpetuate a mode of activism and responsibility that is broken and that does not work. The society that's being created is one that doesn't value everybody, doesn't value you if you're different. The status quo isn't values-led and, and so let's bring on that challenge. I have a whole new understanding, strength of human. I want to be able to look back at my life and think, I did something which actually changed the world and made a difference. Welcome to the Force of Nature podcast with your host, Clover Hogan. And so Fahano, when you decided to protest and you glued yourself to the pavement outside of the Shell building. How did your children respond to that? So Rafi, who was 12, was there when I got arrested and my husband was there too. And in fact, they had the lion's share of the interview with Channel 4 and were very proud to explain why I had done what I had done. Um, The other children have been on school strike and have been very active in the climate justice movement in their own different ways. So I feel very supported by them and they 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 realize why I'm frustrated and why I've taken the action they have. I'm a huge fangirl of yours and what you have committed your life to doing. Um, you have been at the highest end of international negotiations around the climate crisis for over 25 years. What was your catalyst for engaging in uh, nonviolent direct action? I think the trigger for my activism and really I kind of started knowing about Extinction Rebellion. You know, a lot of NGOs and governments kind of published yet another, here's the summary of the latest devastating impacts, by the way. Uh, And some of them, you know, did really cool graphics and had kind of media events. And Extinction Rebellion had a rebellion. Mm -hmm. People went to Parliament Square, Greta Thunberg came to Parliament Square, and people lay down and got themselves arrested. That's the exact right response. That there is what all of humanity should be doing and not just having another NGO briefing or not just having another, you know, front page story. Mm. You know, we need to go beyond those kind of campaigning tools. How did you feel conflicted, though, given the context of your activism up until that point had been much more about upholding the law in the interest of our planet and people and environment and then suddenly going against the law. How was that experience for you? It was like all trundling along. If you remember the number of MPs who turned up for a debate on climate issues at the beginning of 2019 was, it was literally like 10% of the 650 MPs, you know, turned up. It was like the chamber 
chamber was entirely empty. No one cared. Um, so I, f I, f I feel like for me, it was like th this needs a much bigger shake up. And me sort of speaking truth to power or saying, here's another legal fix. Here's one I made earlier. You know, it wasn't going to work, wasn't mm. going to work without making people feel you know, maybe breaking the law is far more potent. Yeah. The biggest corporations in the world, um, especially the financial sector that backs them, are continuing to just carry on as if things don't matter. The concept of ecocide now really fits the facts. You know, it fits the devastation and the destruction of people and their livelihoods and their cultures. Um, and, and that needed to be said. Mm. And it was important that social movements which have done systemic change um, have always deployed actually far more radical tactics, including nonviolence, civil disobedience, as well as just petitions, lawmaking, advocacy, um, and so forth. How on a personal individual level did you try to break through to those individual kind of politicians and people in elected positions of power? What were the tactics that you used to really communicate the urgency and try to ignite that agency in them? This 30-year journey of having advised many different ministers and countries to speak up and to, to say, I'm sorry, what I can offer you as a lawyer isn't really good enough. Mm. And, you know, we need a people's based movement we need far more radical solutions than you may get from this negotiating space mm -hmm. that's not to diminish the importance of the un negotiations that's not to diminish the importance of the un climate summits but i think it's 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 really important to recognize sometimes that those spaces have become um taken over by vested interests at times mm -hmm. they've become places where a lot of greenwashing occurs uh, both governments and corporates turn up and make announcements. And I feel, again, 30 years of experience with announcement after announcement of another new initiative. You know, I'd rather have a report back on the implementation of the last initiative because mm -hmm. often they have not been implemented. They've just withered right. on the vine and, um, you know, they haven't achieved enough. They haven't led to the sort of, you know, big change that they were meant to. Yeah. So nobody reports on that yeah. properly. They just come along and make a bunch of whole new announcements that yeah. then don't really add up. Pointing really again to the role of the larger you know fossil fuel majors is really important mm. since the signing of the paris agreement since 2015 these five five oil companies had spent a billion dollars on lobbying marketing and what we call narrative capture so you see so many adverts on billboards as well as now Facebook, mm. individualized and political ads, which give the appearance that these are the green energy companies. Mm -hmm. And actually only like 1% of the total expenditure, trillions of dollars that they spend is on green energy or low carbon alternatives. Yeah. In the case of Shell, it's like 3%. So the other 97%, like 115 billion in this report for the previous year is going on still digging up dirty fuel you know and yet they're using lobbying marketing narrative capture as we say mm. to give the impression to the public to give oh. the impression to politicians that they're all green and on board interesting this theme of greenwashing because um i attended cop 25 as did you and the most uplifting 
moment came during a panel session which the CSO, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer of Coca-Cola, was on. And there was a youth activist moderating that panel. And the CSO, you know, of Coca-Cola was talking about all of the incredible green efforts that they're pursuing and how they're radically changing their bottom line and, uh, you know, this very, very glossy kind of interpretation of their impact in the world. And this youth activist, she knew her shit and she (laughs) called him out and said, so why is it then that you have been draining the water tables in India? Why is it then that you are not taking more radical stance on, you know, phasing out plastic bottles for glass ones? Why is it then that you actively paid these lobbyists to suppress climate policy and just really, really put him in Mm. his place? And it was such a breath of fresh air because otherwise the cop really did just feel like this constant walking on eggshells and tinkering around the edges. And we need to get much better and much more comfortable with calling out people in real time um, when there is that gross kind of grating on our values. And when we realize that you're entirely there to maintain the status quo, you have no real interest in driving forward change. Um, And with that, I'm curious to hear how your perception of um, power has changed throughout your career, especially in the context of movements like XR. Young people see the obvious you know, um, through and despite all of the greenwashing and despite the glossy reports, they're seeing every day the breakdown of their societies and the breakdown of the global ecological space. They see it. Mm. The economy that gave rise to that is the same economy that is fueling, you know, uh, poverty and austerity and cutbacks in, in essential services. It's making transport very expensive. It's meaning that in this country we've got millions and millions of homes that are wasting energy and mean that poor people cannot afford their electricity bills. We've got four million people in the UK reliant on food banks Mm. and are living in poverty, four million children. Um, So we're kind of going back to some kind of feudal version of capitalism and that's becoming very clear to people. And I think the companies have not caught up with that reality. They're still far behind thinking their future customers Uh, will continue to buy their products. And actually, a lot of the future customers are saying very clearly, we're not interested in these products and we're able to move beyond them and we would like you to take the leadership Mm. in designing, you know, different kinds of products and using the planet in a different kind of way. So I think, you know, there are much more radical um, parts in some of those big organisations that could respond to the circular economy, that could respond to the gift economy, Mm. that could see themselves as corporations that had purpose very much you know at their center but they're but they're not getting there fast enough i feel like the engagement model let's engage and try and get those in power to to now give it up and give up the sort of practices and give up you know um, what goes with it is is a losing wicket nobody in power who's read those reports and they have wants to change because Mm. they will not change power does not give itself up mm. without that demand and without that rejection and without that uh, boldness of action. So, And the system I, tries to defend itself, yeah. the very nature of the system. Yeah. And the very people, as you said, who have not only benefited from these systems of power but have constructed them and have everything to lose. That's why young people are able to be so radical is that they're coming into this afresh and yeah. they're saying, for us, this is do or die. This isn't about maintaining that status quo. And yet a number of the young people I've worked with 
this, you know, self-limiting beliefs kind of yeah. come into play. Uh, everything from I'm too small to make a difference to the future is something happening to me, not something I have control over. And interestingly, the recurring trend is um, the system is too broken to create meaningful change. Yeah. The invitation of creating new systems is what needs to ignite that individual mm. agency. It's the potential of being a custodian of a new future and a future by our own design. What in your eyes do we need to leave behind on a macro level in terms of capitalism and the commodification of people on the planet? And what do we need to invite in? And how do we identify pockets of that new future in the present? And how can we all be drivers of that change? We've established um, a group of community groups working with um, Camden Council, a community hub on the high street from a disused space that was shut down, uh, an eco pop-up, a pop-up space. Um, and we have events, talks, workshops, labs, hackathons. We feed people, people bring food, people um, say, I know these people who would love to collaborate on this project. We've created new projects. We're developing, there's 90 projects that have just come out at different stages of gestation. Some are ready to go from gifting trees that people plant in their back garden to clothes swaps where people have said, I'm taking a fashion fast. I'm no longer going to buy you know, new clothes to, to learning about the oceans, to having a weaving workshop, to creating art, to everything. Mm. A lot of the young school children who came, actually, they said, we want to learn about fast fashion and what to do about it. And then gave us a great seminar on <laughs> global <laughs> supply chains and the impact of fashion. This experiment is called Think and Do. Mm. Um, and it's uh, deliberately uh, organized around thinking and doing because every single person needs to think and do something different. And every single person is a thought leader in themselves. They are organizers of their own lives. They are best placed to um, think through what are the impacts and the consequences. And then they all need to do something different. The thinking and the doing go together. They go hand in hand. I'm rejecting that more elite model mm -hmm. that, you know, some people came up with the solutions or came up with a technology list or came up with the blueprint for the economy that, you know, then the rest of us had to, to. accept <laughs> and go away and implement or yeah. just go in kind of live in yeah. and that I think has been a big failure of the climate movement in the past is has been too technocratic mm -hmm. too um, much based on uh, on elite reports and elite think tanks yeah. controlling a lot of that uh, narrative and we forgot to ask the people what they wanted to do and what they were prioritizing so I think that that has to come from people being able to discuss solutions mm -hmm. at their own scale in their own everyday lives, in their own everyday boroughs, in their own everyday cities. And we're starting with those cities and councils that have already declared a climate and ecological emergency. There are thousands of them all around the world. They cover quite a large percentage of the population, around 800 million people. My borough, Camden, is 260,000 people. It has um, a whole set of institutions like um, two universities, three colleges, art spaces, the British Museum. It has, you know, a huge cultural set of actors. It has green spaces. And if we can kind of reimagine a new society and what it means by bringing people together to see how do schools, arts organisations, transport hubs, you know, how, how can you take those spaces and see them as your assets and start to reimagine what your li everyday life uh, looks like. Say if you're a 12-year-old or a 16-year-old or a, you know, uh, a, a mum with 
you know, young kids at home and you're taking time out and, you know, where, where do you go to create climate action? Mm. You know, what, what, what do you do? So the model behind Think and Do is to have pop-up climate Think and Do labs and climate Think and Do centers in school. Mm. So most schools are closed for half of the year. Most schools are only open for eight, nine hours of the day at maximum and half of their premises, even during term time, are not being used. So one way of building countervailing power is to see where are the spaces that actually do belong to us. Mm. They belong to us as taxpayers, as local authority payers, and how can we make those spaces serve us? Mm. So we're creating essentially new commons from where there were none. And so maybe you could use your school assembly hall. Maybe you could have a, a think and do in um, for three hours a week or three hours a month or a day a month. Yeah. You know, you're going to figure out what's possible by talking to your colleagues, your friends, the parents, your student fe fellows. Everyone is going to work out whether you, maybe you'll have a think and do lunchtime spot every single day where people come and start talking and sharing and talking about, you know, their anxieties, their fears, their hopes, new ideas and collaborate. So this whole idea is that you, you create spaces where people already are and where they're familiar and feel safe and trusted. So maybe you can have a think and do it in your workplace or in your library or in the forecourt of a a, a, a station. You know, mm. we've got King's Cross and Euston. We've got some of the biggest gateways train stations in 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 London yeah. uh, that are the gateways to Europe, by the way. So we're thinking of having these think and do mm. pop-ups come up everywhere. This is super exciting. Yeah. Super, super yeah. exciting because it's also disintegrating that very notion of kind of hierarchy and ownership, um, which are super, super problematic. Climate has been spoken about for the longest time through the lens of, you know, solar panels and better energy systems and whatnot. And yet we realize if we actually look at the availability of solutions that it's everything from, you know, how we clothe ourselves to the food in our fridge all the way through to how we're educating girls in developing parts mm. of the world and how we're making sure that they have access to their reproductive rights. And I think that's super exciting because it shows us that, you know, just as the problems are myriad, so too are the solutions. So yeah. no matter what you're kind of passionate about or curious about or want to unpick, there's a way for you to kind of fit into the 7.6 billion piece puzzle uh, in a really, really exciting way. All of the kind of climate, environmental, uh, social experts I've spoken to, they've said that this connection and this sense of contribution is going to be the most important thing that you can carry forward into the future in the mm -hmm. face of increasing catastrophe and crisis and collapse. It's it's the it's the connection to your fellow man that is going to enable you to foster the kind of resilience that we all need uh, in these increasingly turbulent times. Um, with that, what extent of collapse do you feel is inevitable of the current system? None, if we have these resilient communities, because mm. we need to totally separate out natural events, including extreme events and slow, you know, uh, events like sea level rise, and separate them out from what our human response is. So our human response to a worsening climate, in many cases, is got to be to re to build kinder, regenerative, mm. more socially integrated, more just communities. We don't have to interpret climate collapse, as some are saying, as the collapse of our own systems of decency and human human systems. Mm. And and sometimes people conflate and confuse those. So, so let me just give you an example. Like the same hurricane 
in a country that has got good building codes and a good welfare system and resilient communities will kill no one. It doesn't. That's what happens today in essentially richer countries with good warning systems, good building systems, adequate warning where people hold each other. It doesn't kill anyone the same with the same ferocity in countries that are, you know, not so prepared, don't have such a robust infrastructure, don't have early warnings. It will kill lots and it will devastate lots of property. And that's a direct consequence of the society that we've chosen to live in and build. So we have to start separating out. Yes, nature may be unkinder to us and may give us more surprises. But actually, the way in which people are already suffering is essentially to do with very unjust systems and a breakdown of communities so that people are isolated and can no longer be in this together. If you look at, for example, the number of deaths by heat waves, the number of deaths by heat waves tends in Europe um, uh, to be people who are lonely and who are living in flats alone, which is sometimes the elderly, right? There's, that's not nature, that's us and our, the way in which we've organized an unkind society and unkind, more lonely, you know, and our housing is, you know, reinforcing that. I feel very passionate that people stop talking about the inevitability of climate collapse, I feel almost it's kind of those people who don't want to fight for social justice, who are afraid of the battles that need to be won in our social, economic and financial systems. And we want people to step up to the challenge of yeah. creating those, you know, better, more resilient, kinder systems than to shut down and, and yes. sort of uh, go and learn bushcraft and think, how can I, how can I, you know, go and buy a gun and live alone, you know? And that sadly is the response that we're being steered towards mm -hmm. that, that, you know, um, climate change is going to bring such horrific levels of devastation climate change not not our society climate change will do this all by itself why are we going to leave people to become refugees and mm. not be able to live in their own countries because we have an abundance of technology we can harvest the entire energy of the sun in a, a few hours to gift free energy if we use solar battery photovoltaics microgrids we have finally figured out how to do that um, and why isn't that happening mm. because it's being prevented it's being prevented by the very people who are profiting from this system right now which is leaving huge numbers of people globally as well as in this country on fuel poverty and actual food poverty mm. you know you have to remember the story of joseph and his technical code right you have to remember the story of noah's ark noah built the ark and yeah. survived yeah. you know that was a response strategy you know mm. joseph told the you know the, the pharaoh to plan for seven years of devastation and seven years and that's why they got through it so we have to think in terms of our own responses it's now young people even those working in the system have realized essentially the instability that's at the heart of capitalism mm. the pure pursuit of profits private profits not caring that actually our whole societies are based on nature that's actually what's causing a lot of the problems that's what's tipping us over into mm. global ecological tipping points but I, I don't want to say everything will be brilliant you know i think there are some devastating things which when i read about them really do make me cry frankly mm. you couldn't help look at the forest fires in, in in brazil and in australia and not 
you know, feel real pain for both the people whose properties and livelihoods have been devastated, as well as all the wildlife. You know, mm. a billion, a billion creatures have have burned to death. At the same time, every year on an industrial level, we slaughter 66 billion animals to perpetuate the system of animal agriculture, and that is exploitation on a massive, massive level. And so, as you said, there is so much that we have become kind of complacent with that fits into this model of commodification and capitalism and power exerted from the top of a hierarchy or chain of command down onto people that are less than. And that framing that you have just presented of social justice and climate justice is the best that I've ever heard um, because it's just very easy to understand. And it, it shows us then how the relationship between the harm that we inflict upon ourselves and our neighbors is the same harm that we're inflicting on the planet and on our environment. And it sounds like you're coming from a real sense of, of hope from your experience with Think and Do and, and seeing the power of community coming together. How on a wider level are we able to reintegrate those kind of social bonds um, so that we're very considered in the way that we're treating one another and coming from that place of compassion? So I think talking to people and reconnecting at that local level and literally face to face, this can't be just about digital stuff anymore, um, is really key. And again, that's what the Think and Do space is about and trying to have pop up spaces where you where you talk to people mm. on a on a on a human scale is important and find out, you know, how how do you get to work? What do you eat? What are you a bit worried about? Just it's kind of joyous and fun and making mm. that learning fun mm. uh, and more connected is is really important. And I think putting social justice, it sounds like a really big thing, but actually it is uh, been rare for the environment community to put people in the center of things. You know, for a long time, they've kind of it's been people versus nature. Mm. It, you know, the trade-off has been you either protect nature or you protect people and nature has to be protected from people. People are bad. Uh, and that's not true. What we're finding is, you know, people who are directly actually exposed to living in and, 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 and sit and work alongside nature are often its biggest protectors and defenders. The agricultural system has to absolutely change and is a big blockage. You know, it's given, again, a lot of greenwashing, a lot of money, Money has been spent by corporate agriculture, mm. which constitutes the bulk of, you know, farming at the moment. You know, it's kind of it isn't just this farmer with, you know, the dog, you know, herding all those cows. These are industrial processes um, with huge amounts of chemical, which huge amounts of of fossil fuel based chemicals. So I think people understanding the story of their food, understanding the f the story of their, their 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 fashion, the clothes that they wear, understanding why their transport system is so poor and why it's so expensive in the case of London. People are spending two hours of their day and a quarter of their wage packet on transport. I think understanding that what we need is something called a Green New Deal or a natural mm you know, a green industrial revolution or um, a decade long sort of massive uh, connected effort where we look at where people are and we try and uh, make everything better. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and luckily we have got a lot of the solutions now. We didn't have 10 years ago renewables being much cheaper than anything else. We have ways in which we've um, encouraged people to think about changing their diets, either cutting out meat and dairy altogether or at least limiting it, you mm -hmm. know, instead of going from seven days a week to 
to five. That would yeah. be an amazing jump for m many people. And if you're on five days a week, go down to four. And that's what my family's done. And mm. I feel like we've almost phased out um, meat. We have it for a luxury. We have it as a treat. And maybe that's how it should be. And then you and really appreciate it in the moments when you do have it. You know, sustainability, as you said, has been um, enshrined in a message of sacrifice if we are able to shift that to a narrative of invitation and opportunity and and becoming aware of climate and and your impact as a means of improving your own welfare and your sense of purpose i think one of the most important shifts that we need to go through is the emphasis of individualism to more of a kind of collectivist thinking and i'm not yeah. talking in terms of communism or you know hello comrade but <laughs> really in an increasingly globalized world super conscious of how every decision that I make in my day-to-day -day life has an impact on someone else in another part mm. of the world, whether it is, you know, the person who created my clothes or it is where my food has grown. Um, we need to appreciate value through a very different lens to encompass that. Um, and we need to live much more locally. We need to reconnect with how my everyday decision mm. has a ripple impact in far-flung parts of the world or else we're going to continue to kind of remain in these very closed off silos. What does inclusivity look like on a global level then? How do we extend our sense of community from the borough in which we live to our, our planet and 7.6 billion people? I think you have to care about the people in your borough. So it's the same muscle, it's the same moral muscle so if you're indifferent to the people here, you're far more likely to be indifferent to future generations of the people mm. living overseas. So it goes hand in hand, this social cohesion, social justice, inclusivity, looking at what's happening in your own high street. Mm. And that's what's exciting about Think and Do is actually you, you're building community and learning about the people around you, those who are not so fortunate and mm -hmm who find it amazing that there's a free cup of tea on offer <laughs> and there's some free food and, and really yeah. value it because they're priced out of the economy where mm. everyone's going into a shop to buy a three pound latte. Right. They can't do that. Right. So it's almost reinventing our notion of what the high street looks like, what mm. our own community um, looks like. And again, it's a set of ideologies that have been around, which is somehow the private sector and finance and corporates, they make the wealth. The markets, mm. you know, generate wealth uh, and state institutions and whether it's the NHS or schools and those who work in them, they're like the drain, they're the break, the state versus the market, the public sector versus the private sector. There's all these binaries, you know, mm. it's almost like one or the other. And so again, the idea of think and do is st start start getting rid of the binaries you know mm. the most important word in that thing can do is and <laughs> that you do both we need the private sector and we need the state sector and there's a whole load of other models all the way in between we're all generating value we're all increasing wealth in a true sense good roads good hospitals good schools um good community centers all generate the way in which a healthy community lives those things have been starved of funding because you know the, the 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 economy has grown into a very extractivist economy that takes all of the taxes mm. and essentially rewards certain sectors and not others so fossil fuel subsidies these are actually just government handouts amount to trillions 
like 1.5 trillion is one estimate by the IMF. See how many cities, communities, transport systems, NHSs, how many schools could be funded by that. And currently all of that is going to a handful of billionaires, like 26 billionaires, you know, own like literally half the wealth on the planet. Those trillions as my it's my money, it's my money. <laughs> yeah. I'm a taxpayer and I want to decide how the government handouts uh, should go mm. I want to have a say both locally in my in my local budgets at council level as mm-hmm. well as nationally mm-hmm. why are we still giving trillions the you know 12 naught figures not the mil- millions not you know hundred thousands to activities that are in the end devastating and causing social injustice and causing us now to be at the brink where the entire planet could have very major irreversible consequences that are very expensive to deal with. We talk about taxes. What if we were to reframe them as community funds? You know, what if Mm -hmm. this is about supporting your community? It's about supporting the people around you. There would be much higher subscription to that model, I believe. I think there's so much excitement about creating new forms of assets Mm. and new platforms and you know, I'd never heard of Monzo and then my kids told me <laughs> there's a bank called Monzo Mum and that's what everyone's using. Uh, and it's like, actually, you can create banks. Mm. Uh, and I sort of looked into it and I talked to some people who are trying to launch a new bank, a new banking system that's based on my money. It's my one pound in the bank account that generates, uh, allows those banks to invest 10 pounds mm. everywhere else. So actually my pound really matters mm. where it goes. You know, let's have a bank where I can say, all the money that you held and all the loans that you give and everything will be local or would be in projects that I really like why can't I do that at the moment it's done by sector Mm. so you can say I don't want to invest in the arms trade for example I've got the hang of that we should also have a box that says actually I would like my money to be placed Mm. and go to Bangladesh or Pakistan or to stay in you know uh, in my community I'd love to decide you know how my pension how my money how my bank account works in that way and we have to invent that bank because it doesn't exist at the moment exactly so we need the ingenious people the people who go around creating stuff like Monzo and other platforms to to turn their heads to how to do that. That's it. So I'm very impressed by young people and entrepreneurs who are thinking in a very different way yeah. and informed by really different values and don't always see themselves as just wanting to become billionaires the whole time yeah. at whatever cost. <laughs> What's super exciting that I've witnessed in the kind of corporate world is how change is being inspired by young people having conversations with their parents in these existing positions of power. I had a session recently um, with a a big European company and we were talking about climate and and our responsibility and our role. And every single person at that table said that their catalyst moment had been their child or a friend's child coming to them at the end of the day and saying, what on earth are you doing to actually... Yeah. protect my future <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's that's quite exciting because again it challenges that idea of power and decision making happening within this very controlled kind of elite within these closed door rooms to something that can emanate from any one of us and the invitation that I often present to people is is going deep you know I think mm. any change maker in history would tell us that that impact comes from focus. It's saying, you know, this is my cause. This is the problem that I want to see solved in the world. Um, How would you define that problem for yourself? What is that one Mm. thing that you would like to see solved in your own lifetime for HANA? And and how do you see your role in solving for that problem? 
the learning for me is climate change is systemic, so it can't be solved through one initiative. So my focus <laughs> is changing the system mm. and everyone accepting that carbon and our carbon lifestyle is embedded everywhere. It's literally the fabric of this building, that way you got to work, the clothes that you're wearing, what you're going to eat. It's all of those things. So in essence, it's a vision for how we need to live anew and make a new um, uh, contract with our fellow citizens, our future generations, our young people, with our politicians. Everyone has to come together and renew that, renew that model. Mm -hmm. The small stuff is the big stuff, mm. but n not in a way like uh, uh, just as a gesture, as virtue signaling, but actually that the entire supply chain of um, food in Camden schools involves phasing out plastics is a mm -hmm. massive example to everyone else. Like if we can do it in Camden, everyone else can do it. What we do in one place can quickly become a site of experimentation and positive action everywhere else. Change is fractal. You can start anywhere and actually it has a reverberating effect all around on a personal level. I don't think you can be a nature protector if you don't spend time in nature mm. and if you don't reconnect and see yourself as a force of nature. <laughs> so what am I as a force of nature? I want to feel part of it and connected to it in an everyday sense. And so I think, especially in urban areas, it's very quick to re-disconnect. How do we connect people back to nature? Nature is all around us, it's through us, we are at its service, it nourishes us every day. And so place-based ways in which we can reconnect, in which we can see the wonder of nature all around us is what I'm kind of really excited about. It's a good point that you touch on because much of our you know, oppression of an exploitation of the natural world and of people, indigenous peoples and people who don't speak the same language stems from a lack of understanding. And we tend not to value the things that we do not understand. And what's really exciting is we're seeing the spectrum and diversity of intelligence in that world that our limited reality has just not been able to tap into up until this point. Mm. Everything from mycelium through to how trees communicate with one another. It's really, really exciting. And I think within each of us, exactly as you said, spending more time in nature, rekindling that ecophilia, that deep appreciation, that awe for the natural world comes from appreciating the diversity of lived experience on mm. this planet. An initiative that really took off last year was London was declared the first national park city. And they produced a brilliant map showing how green London actually is. You know, 30, 40% of the spaces are green or blue, like they're waterside, mm. canals, ponds, lakes, um, and the rest is gardens. You know, it's easier to lament and to see what's gone rather than what's right there in front of your face. Take a walk in nature, taking a walk to all the local parks, making those parks better, mm. rewilding your pavement. You know, there are trees outside every house, practically, mm. you know, if you live in the city or you're you're never very far away and its roots are underneath you we're embedded in nature and we can support it and help it recover mm. and there's a huge place for rewilding you know both urban rewilding and rewilding our landscape but you can start in your back garden you can start with your council and then another project that we're sort of thinking about and cre creating at the moment is like what if an entire estate came together social houses social you know housing um and we rewilded that. We created a community oasis. We created a social justice-based cafe. We Amazing. did energy efficiency. We created low cars, yeah. no car zones. You know, it's all in our imagination. It's all to play for. And I yeah. feel um, the green economy is actually far more 
um, present than we think it is. And again, it's another reason to stop looking at the power mm. that there is and look at the power there is in the green economy. It's generating huge numbers of jobs. It's already here. Let's start, you know, making it thrive. We find it really, really difficult to wrap our heads around something as massive and all-encompassing and systemic as the climate crisis. But just connecting it to what that single first step can be is super empowering because it creates pathways for people. It creates trajectories. Um, and that's it. I think we don't have to be as grandiose. It's just, it's inviting people to come on a journey, think differently. We need to get better at at telling those stories. Well, I hope that we can, um, you know, make Kentish Town Road look different. Mm. And that's what I feel. I feel people can't even imagine what that different high street looks like. And it has to look different, yeah. doesn't it? What yeah. does that different high street look like? Get together with five friends in a cafe and mm. start working out, you know, where can I wait, ask your council, you know, how many um, underutilized disused buildings are there? Or can I rent this community space for free? Or can I ask people to come and imagine yeah. what that different high street looks like, what that economy looks like, what the different world looks like? And exactly. whatever word excites you, Yes. Think and do something different. And that's it. I think helping to manifest those images and ignite that imagination, super critical that we invite poets and artists and people who think in lateral kind of visionary ways so that we can we can come together we can bring the scientists together with the artists and the creatives and that I feel is where the magic is really you know made possible and where it fosters and where it cultivates and blossoms in a super exciting way a lot of this is about imagination and creativity and you know as one person says creativity is the antidote to despair and Mm. actually it's about learning to make stuff in a way which is kinder nicer and collaborative do you feel like there is anything getting in the way of your own ability to imagine create no i've got like an abundance of ideas and i think that's Our experience actually is that once people start imagining themselves and thinking of themselves as solution providers, you know, Mm. not just implementers of somebody else's ideas, they just come up with a billion things. And I'm going to now say, okay, I'll do the pop-up front garden community fridge thing. We'll have to wait a bit because I do have to start this bit. It's also great to have... um, other people say, oh, I'll, t- I'll do that bit and mm. I'll help with that bit. Or would you like me to do X, Y, and Z? So it's it's very collaborative and kind of fun. And it's also reflective of our research around eco-anxiety and eco-phobia mm. and, and feelings of powerlessness in the face of these problems is that the best antidote is agency yeah. and action and taking that first step. And that first step must start with imagination and I would add going into a physical space Mm. where you can meet people is sort of part of that the environment climate movement actually needs to get back in touch with its members and help them do stuff and be a community yeah and I feel also as a mum with um I feel like I was kind of taking the responsibility I guess as a generation you know we will fix it with our professional kind of thinking and Mm through negotiations and it's been a bit humbling to to admit actually we need help and we need the help of young people and they're mm. the ones who are teaching us more than anyone else yeah um about the the interconnectedness of the world and the kind of world they want to live in yeah they don't want to live in this the world that we've <laughs> created thus far so that's the biggest important <laughs> lesson and i'm being very <laughs> inspired by that yeah. they want to live in a really different world and they exactly. don't want to be the customers of the same 
companies and they have different models in their heads. And for younger generations as well, it's it's yeah. not just doing the finger pointing and just yeah. projecting responsibility. It's how, as this emerging generation of leaders, can we find the allies within politics, within organizations, within wider society to be able to all become custodians of a future yeah. by our own making and do this very much as a collaboration um, that is ignorant of silos or, you know, yeah isolationism it's really encouraging and exciting to to see to see how people's minds young people's minds work without the binary and the prejudices that exist and i hope that energy and optimism you know won't be shattered and you don't become jaded and cynical that's one of the problems that we see in the corporate space is you learn to become complacent and you learn Mm. to stop thinking for yourself because you're just trying to survive within that status quo and within Mm. that system of hierarchy and power dynamics and if you stay really solidly grounded in what you stand for and what you're unwilling to compromise on then I think we will be able to maintain the space for that imagination and creativity and hope you know it's it is holding on to that hope while creating the space to kind of reconcile the damage that has been done and will continue to be done um it's sitting somewhere in that messy middle and not forgetting you know that we can help and we do come together in times of crisis that is the arc of human history Mm. i'm glad i'm alive now me too (laughs) because it's a more inclusive wonderful (laughs) society and we can finally look after each other as a human family exactly maybe we needed to get to this point to wake up and have that consciousness and i feel like the the generation that's uh rising up has that um and are making the right kind of demands and some of that is just amplifying their demands and some of it is just getting out of the way and letting them (laughs) take over um and, and imagine a better future and create it with them Thanks for listening to this Force of Nature podcast with Fahana Yaman. You can learn more about Fahana and Think and Do in the show notes. We want to hear your questions, aha moments, musings, and of course, we want to know how you plan to rebel before next week's episode, when you'll be hearing from Ellie Hansen on how to find what you die for and live for it. Force of Nature is edited by Kazra Ferruzia, produced by James Bishop of One Fine Play, and would not be as good as it is without the wisdom of my mum, Janet Hogan. You can find me at Clover Hogan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and stay in the loop with Force of Nature on all the same channels at forceofnature.xyz, including TikTok. Don't forget to subscribe and go check out our videos on YouTube. See you next time.